Our first reading is from the first book of Exodus, beginning of chapter 6, and it's on page 58 in your Bibles. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it amongst the reeds along the banks of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket amongst the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just bow our heads for a prayer before I begin. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd come by your spirit, that you'd help me to speak, and that you'd give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. A princess goes to bathe by the river. And her heart is won by the cries of an abandoned baby. A bushfire that never burns up, but from it speaks the voice that will change the course of history. An unarmed shepherd walks out of the wilderness to do battle with the most powerful man in the world. The people of Egypt turn back their bedsheets to discover their beds are full of frogs. The lone cry of a bereaved 
mother is added to another and another and another until a loud wailing echoes out across the land. A whole nation walks through a sea with walls of water on either side. Amid thunder and lightning and thick cloud and an earthquake, the voice of God echoes out across the plains. In the wilderness, a man argues with God on behalf of a people, and God relents. The glory of God so fills a tent that everybody has to get out. They they have to evacuate. There's absolutely no shortage of dramatic moments in the book of Exodus, and those are just but a very few of them. That's our new preaching series starting today. It's captured the public imagination and even the imagination of filmmakers. Several films have been made about the Exodus. It's a story of deliverance from oppression that has inspired liberation movements from the Pilgrim Fathers to the English revolutionaries of the 17th century to the anti-slavery campaigns of the 19th century to the civil rights movements of the 20th century. It's the cry of, let my people go, that's echoed down across the centuries. But in truth, as Tim Chester says in his commentary on Exodus, it's a message even more dramatic than those dramatic moments and even more revolutionary than those revolutionary movements. Exodus is a book about liberation, about sacrifice, about the presence of God, about slavery, about worship, about mission, about new creation. And most of all, it's about us. It's our story, the story of God's people. Exodus sets the story of God's relationship with humanity on a course that will reach its climax in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What theologians sometimes call the new Exodus, when Jesus came to set us free from the slavery of sin. And so it's key to understanding the purpose and the life of Jesus. And so we're going to be unravelling this story over the next 10 weeks or so. And if you don't know the book of Exodus very well, then let me encourage you by saying it's, it's an exciting story. It's a historical story. And since it points us to Jesus and helps us to worship him, it's our story, the story of the people of God. So can I begin by asking you to turn to, um, if you've got it, turn to the first chapter of Exodus. It's on page 58 of the church Bibles. There's a few scattered around the pews if you haven't got one with you. Um, But what is Exodus? Exodus is the second book of the Bible. So if it's the second book, what's happened so far? Well, first of all, we've had creation, haven't we? God has spoken into being the whole universe. He's made the earth, the seas, the plants, the fish, the animals, and then the pinnacle of his creation is the creature that he created to live in a relationship of love with him, human beings. But then we come to the fall, because the human beings come to a moment depicted in the story of Adam and Eve when the first creatures who God created actively disobey him and sin enters the world. And it goes downhill after that. And so God sends a flood 
to wipe out every living thing, apart from one righteous man, his family, and some animals with which to repopulate the earth after the flood. And then a few generations later, enter Abraham. There's a bit of a map up here because he's a nomadic, uh, he's the head of a nomadic family that travels across the Arabian territories from Babylonia in the south, crossing what we call Iraq and Syria today, following the course of the Tigris and the Euphrates, rivers that are mentioned in the creation account, and settling in Haran in the north. And, and God gives Abraham two promises. He says, first of all, I'm going to give you a people that you're going to be fruitful and multiply, and you're going to be so numerous that there'll be more of you than the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And the second promise is, he, he says, I'm going to give you a place, a promised land where God's people will live abundantly and fruitfully and will be a blessing to the rest of the world. And God calls Abraham to go on a journey to the promised land. And, he, and in obedience he goes, and he travels down to Canaan, the, the promised land, and he settles there. And then one generation comes after another. Abraham, um, his son is Isaac. And then Isaac has a son, Jacob. And then Jacob has a son, Joseph. But Joseph becomes very unpopular with his brothers. And they sell him to some slave traders who take him off to Egypt. But God's hand is on all these events because Joseph is raised eventually in Pharaoh's palace and becomes the second most powerful man in the whole of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, his right-hand man. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, in the Promised Land, there's a terrible famine. And they've heard that there's food in Egypt, and so Jacob and his family travel and they rejoin Joseph in Egypt. And when they've rejoined Joseph in Egypt, that is the end of Genesis. That's the end of the the first book of the Bible. But before we jump into Exodus, just those of you who've got a Bible with you, just turn back one page to the last chapter of Genesis. Because I want to show you something in verse 24. It's almost near, it's very near the end um, in, in Genesis. Joseph is now very, very old. He's an old man. And it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promises that they will be returned to the promised land. But instead of returning to the promised land under their own steam, the Israelites settle in Egypt. And they settle and they settle and they settle. And life is good. And they have all they need. They're comfortable. So they stay. And yet, that's not God's purpose for their lives. They've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten God's promises and God's purposes that they will one day be a blessing to the whole world from the promised land. And I think this is one of the great human sicknesses, if you like. And Christians are just as prone to it as anyone else. Our tendency to settle for the status quo instead of living out our destiny 
you know, we had those thoughts once. We had those dreams. We felt that call of God on our life. We imagined what we could be, but we've settled for the status quo. We've settled for comfort, or if we don't have comfort, we've settled for coping mechanisms, our addictions to materialism or escaping into hours of TV or alcohol or whatever it is that those dreams have been replaced by. The people of God in Egypt started to forget the God who loved them. They started to forget who they were, people of the promise. Do we sometimes forget who we are? Children of God, saved by grace, bought at a price, chosen and precious. Commissioned to take the good news and the love of God into the world. Do we settle for the status quo because we're afraid to rock the boat? Well, let's now turn over back to the first chapter of Exodus because the people of God are about to get a lot less comfortable. So just to give you an idea, it's 1300 BC, approximately. Joseph's descendants are still in Egypt and some 300 years plus have passed. And they've multiplied so successfully that we read in verses 6 and 7, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. God's first promise is coming true. He's told Abraham, his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And they have multiplied hugely. However, they're soon viewed as a threat by the ruling, uh, by the ruling Pharaoh in Egypt. In verse 8, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. They've become a threat. There are some fascinating parallels, aren't there, with today. Many European countries, including our own, are kind of securing our borders. We view the migration crisis as a threat to our future stability. In America, Donald Trump is the loudest advocate of Pharaoh's fears, if you like. The Egyptians have identified that they have an immigration issue. The immigrants, God's people, the Israelites, descended from Abraham, are now a threat. So Pharaoh starts making life difficult for them. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Pharaoh effectively makes the Israelites slaves of all the Egyptians, and he puts them to work on major infrastructure projects for the country. But what happens? The plan backfires. In verse 12 we read, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The joke is on Pharaoh, and he doesn't like it one bit, and so he moves to plan B. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. Pharaoh decides he's going to get rid of all the future Israelite young men. But once again, 
The joke backfires on Pharaoh, the plan backfires on Pharaoh because God rewards the midwives with families because they refuse to do what Pharaoh says. It says in verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. And they even lied to Pharaoh, told him that by the time they got to the birthing mothers, the babies were already born and were being looked after, so it was too late. So after the failure of plan B, Pharaoh finally turns to outright genocide to eradicate his problem. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. He orders the general execution of all of the Israelite boys. Now, if this had been successful, God's plans for his people would have been thwarted. But once again, God thwarts Pharaoh's plans through the well-known story of one particular baby Hebrew boy at the beginning of chapter 2. And I'll just describe it and say that, to cut a long story short, the woman who he's born to hides her son for three months. When she can't hide him anymore because he's too big, she takes him to the River Nile in a waterproof basket. And instead of throwing him into the Nile, which is Pharaoh's instructions, she floats him off among the reeds in a basket close to where Pharaoh's daughter is, normally goes to bathe. And Pharaoh's daughter hears the cries of the baby and takes pity on him. And the baby's sister offers to find a woman to care for him, conveniently finding the baby's mother, and off they all go to live in the palace. And we finish today at verse 10. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses. Moses, one of the greatest names in the Bible, the man who will one day lead the enslaved Israelites out of Egypt to freedom in the promised land. It's an extraordinary set of events. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, has been outwitted by two Hebrew midwives, then by the mother and the sister of Moses, and finally by Pharaoh's own daughter, who takes in the Hebrew boy and gives him the name Moses and raises him right under Pharaoh's roof. The scene is set. God has placed one of his own people right inside the home of the man who wants to destroy them. And one day God will use Moses to lead the people to freedom. But there will be many twists and turns in the story before then which surprise us and challenge us and hopefully equip us to follow Jesus more closely. But we can already see God's hand at work and we can already learn a key lesson about being people of God in a world which is not always kindly disposed towards them. And that lesson comes from the Hebrew midwives because it says in verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt did. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. There were still some Israelites who remembered who God was and his promises and they held God in higher esteem than they did the most powerful man in the world. They remembered that they were people of the promise. And this is key for us to finding our freedom and living out our destinies. We too, as we remember that that we are children of God, children of the promise, as we live by faith in the promises of God, then we too can find 
freedom. We too can, like those Hebrew midwives, live out our destiny under God. And Jesus came to set us free. That's what the Freedom in Christ course that Johnny talked about is all about. Allowing Jesus to set us free of the things that separate us from his love and from living out his purposes. Some people who were praying before the service had a sense that, that maybe there are one or two people here this morning who've come with, with carrying burdens of guilt about things in the past. Jesus wants to set us free from those things. Hundreds of years later, in, in the second reading you heard this morning, Jesus stood in a, in a synagogue in Nazareth, uh, in Nazareth and he proclaimed that he'd come to bring freedom Good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and to set the oppressed free. And today Jesus is still doing that. Imagine what it would look like if everybody here at St. Matthew's was liberated from the stuff that holds us back, from fear and guilt and shame and all those things, and that we were set free to live our lives, live out our destinies as children of God, loved and forgiven and redeemed by God. So I'm just going to finish by showing you a a one-and-a-half-minute video clip. And this is a few other people who, like Johnny, have done that Freedom in Christ course. Just saying a a couple of words each about what they got out of it. And perhaps it will help you decide whether or not you'd like to join us on our Midweek Central. Thank you, Andrew. Before um, I'd done the course, I used to smoke cannabis. I took drugs. I smoke cigarettes and it's meant that I've given all that up and my life's changed and I'm free. When I reached 40 years old, I had a broken marriage, I had lost a child to leukaemia and my life was taking different pathways and now I am a new person, I have a new pathway ahead, a new future to look forward to and the pain of the past is so much easier to deal with, so much easier. It's great. By going through the course uh, that I was my, uh, learned the truth, I have, once I become a Christian and my life is, belongs to Christ, I'm free from the clutches of Satan. The biggest difference for me that the Freedom in Christ steps in the process has made is just uh, it has genuinely set me free. I, I do believe that uh, I was in bondage um, and, and I had no way of getting out of that. Um, and it, it, it just cleared out the rubbish. It really did. I was definitely someone who thought that I wasn't good enough to be loved, and now just being able to walk freely in, in God's love every day is just so brilliant. Well, now I know I am a saint. It makes a, a big difference in your life. You don't self-condemn anymore. It gives you more assurance. It gives you more confidence. It gives you an inner peace through the Lord that you don't really have before. It gives you just... A boldness for the Lord. It's just so much enriched my whole life. Um, there hasn't been a single cell in my body um, untouched by this. Um, it's a whole new lifestyle from the top of my head to the tips of my toes. I think it's the closest thing I've ever had to a conversion experience, to like a really wow God moment when I realise that inside... I'm untouchable, I'm gold, I'm pure, I'm spotless, I'm holy, and nothing, nothing can touch that.
It just felt like I discovered this treasure. I came to know that the Lord loves me the way I am.